Hello, I'm Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, darlings. I'm Katie Manning, and I played Joe Grant and Joe Grant Jones in Doctor Who, <laughs> and Iris Wildtown. Hello, lovies. <laughs> and you're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels, darlings. Bye-bye. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the evergreen task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, because of course it's Green Death and all. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally evergreen three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level, not-so-green, casual fan, who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we have our semi-casual and no longer completely green fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Safery. Hello, Allison. Green only around the gills now. <laughs> oh, 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 well, hopefully not with anything more serious than just nausea at my opening spiel. So, if you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine you would, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, since we know you have so many of them, you've taken to throwing them down the nearest mineshaft, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, and Stephen Pickering. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, thank guys. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. In fact, we have two comments from that group for tonight. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with our discussion of the final story of Season 10, The Green Death. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Green Death, adapted by Malcolm Hope from the script by Robert Sloman that aired from 5-1973 to 6-23-73, published by Target Books in August 1975. As of this recording in April of 2020, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 142 pages. Alright, first of all, for the newer fans, you should not confuse this with the Green Death in How to Train Your Dragon. 
which I've never seen, but apparently that's a thing in How to Train Your Dragon. See, now I'd have to go back and rewatch it. I don't recall the Green Death. Yeah, oh, really? I don't either. I somehow, when I did a search for Green Death, How to Train Your Dragon came up. And I don't know, is it based on a book series? Eh. This is not oh. the podcast people come to to learn about How to Train Your Dragon, hopefully. No. Maybe it's, it's in the second or third one. I'm sure there are podcasts out there for that, but now that Game of Thrones is over, they've probably all gone defunct. No, they're all how-to podcasts, and they're really annoyed people keep coming to the comments and complaining that they're not about the books and movies. Yes. There's very, very serious animal behavioralists who are trying to teach you to train your Komodo dragon, which is very dangerous and not entertainment (laughs) and not to be taken lightly. No, certainly not. (laughs) As you may have already gathered, this is Joe's last story, and by extension, Katie Manning's. I specifically did not tell either of you this. I don't know if it was much of a surprise at all, but there you go. Mm, You alluded to it coming soon so i knew you knew it was coming so you could have baked the cake but is she the the longest running companion that we've encountered so far other than barbara and ian ah see i'm gonna have to go back and figure that out because if we're talking in terms of episode to doctor ratio the only one who's lasted longer would be jamie because he was with the second doctor for all but one episode Hello everyone, Tony Whit from the future here. I figured that I would break into this discussion rather than subjecting you to the lengthy disquisition that we had about this, which turned out to be entirely inaccurate. I was right that Jamie McCrimmon is the longest-running companion, with 113 episodes, but it turns out that K-9 is in second place, with 94. Sarah Jane Smith is in third place with 80 episodes. And then Ian, Barbara, and Joe are all tied in fourth place with 77 episodes each. Now, back to your regularly scheduled program. Well, maybe that maybe it feels different because I don't recall there ever being, Jamie ever being the only companion. Right. True. Whereas Joe is. Like, what, was there always Jamie and Victoria or Jamie and then later? Um... We had Jamie, Ben, and Polly. Then Ben and Polly left, then we got Victoria, then she left, and then we got Zoe. Yes, I barely remembered Zoe. Yes, and then they all buggered off, and we got Pertwee and Liz very briefly for only four stories, and we've had, yeah, we've had Joe this whole time, three full seasons. But yeah, I'll do the math, and I'll let everybody know by next time, even though our listeners will probably let us know long before (laughs) that, which is fine. I said during our recording of The Space War that Pertwee, Letts, and Dix all essentially decided to leave the series because of Roger Delgado's death, but Katie had planned to leave at the end of Season 10 all along. Her decision probably made Pertwee's decision easier in some respects, though, as they got along extraordinarily well. And since everybody was leaving, I guess he figured he would also go. She would go on to do several audios for Big Finish, including the rather eccentric time lady Iris Wildtime, a character from the Virgin and BBC books created by Paul Mars that I never personally cared for until I heard Katie voice her. So Katie gave that character a lot of personality that I just didn't feel it had before. Uh, but that's personal. That's me being me, and it's not the podcast hating on it. So don't even keep your cards and letters. 
<laughs> she also returned as Joe Grant Jones in the Sarah Jane Adventures episode, The Death of the Doctor, to work with the late Elizabeth Sladen. And the 11th Doctor is played by Matt Smith. In fact, Liz Sladen's death, the anniversary of that was just this past Sunday. We'll be meeting Liz Sladen's character very, very soon. After leaving the show, she did various projects for the BBC, moved to Australia, worked on the stage and screen there, moved back, did a one-woman show called Jezebel and Me about a real-life incident in which Betty Davis dropped in on a fan and stayed for a month, wrote her own series called Private Wives, and even appeared in a stage version of the popular sitcom Allo Allo, which is just hilarious, especially given who she played in it. She also had a rather unusual post-Who job just a few years after leaving. She posed nude with a Dalek in 1976. I'm just going to leave that alone right there, shall I? Because if I'm sure that if you are a heterosexual Doctor Who fan of a particular age, you have already Googled <laughs> Katie Manning Dalek nude, and you have found the shots. Of which I think you've shown us these shots. Oh, I, was gonna say, I? I think, I think yeah. you have exposed us to this material. Oh, shit, that's right, I have. Oh, well. <laughs> As for this story, the environmental slant in the story comes directly from Barry Letts, who is Robert Sloman's uncredited writing partner for the script. Letts was heavily influenced by a full issue of The Ecologist, devoted to a report by Edward Goldsmith and Robert Allen called Blueprint for Survival, which later became a best-selling book. In fact, it's still in print, I believe. Just as with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, influencing the production of Planet of Giants, this is another example of the show taking a forward-thinking view on society, which just proves that the classic series was just as heavy-handed as critics claim that the new series is. Personally, and I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second, I think such criticisms always come from people whose personal views don't line up with those progressive views, just as we might critique it harshly if it expressed views we ourselves disagreed with, but there you go. The part of Cliff was played by Katie Manning's real-life boyfriend at the time, Stuart Bevan. And this wasn't as much a case of nepotism as it initially sounds. The director simply couldn't find anyone suitable to play the part after a meeting with several actors, and so Manning suggested Bevan. And it turned out Bevan was the only one who even attempted a Welsh accent when he auditioned, so the director hired him on the spot. Now, <laughs> Would that be in character, attempting the accent, but not entirely succeeding? Yes. Yes, it would be. So okay. they make fun of his Cardiff accent, where he just learned this in classes rather than from living out in the village? Probably. Regarding the book, among the many changes that Hulk makes to the story, there's one part he didn't change, and that's that the actor playing Elgin, it's not Elgin, we're not in Illinois, it's Elgin, the actor playing Elgin came down with peritonitis during filming, and so we had to bow out of filming after doing all the scenes leading up to Elgin's brainwashing. So the actor Roy Skelton, who would become famous for doing Dalek voices, was cast very quickly. And so in the book, as in the original shooting script, it's Elgin all the way through. This is the only time Malcolm Hulk adapts a script that he did not write himself. David J. Howe's The Target Book doesn't give the reason why Sloman or Letts didn't write it, but it's likely that Letts was too busy, and Sloman never did novelize any of his stories. 
That book also points to a few fascinating things about this one. Namely, it shows an original cover design that has Pertwee's face superimposed on the O and Who. And that idea only gets used once in the entire run of Target novels, and it's on the original cover of Tom Baker's first story, The Giant Robot. From then on for a few years, incoming producer Philip Hinchcliffe's mandate was that only the incumbent doctor would ever appear on the covers. So almost for the entire remainder of the 1970s, we're only going to see Tom Baker's face on the cover, and only if it's a Baker story. There will be no doctor at all on the cover if it's not. So there's... Okay. Yeah. I guess that was for branding purposes. That makes sense. Yeah. The artwork for The Green Death would also have extended onto the back cover as it did with the Three Doctors, and Planet of the Spiders will do that too. But those are the only two times it'll happen. And this is also the last book in story order and in publication order to feature internal illustrations. So if you've enjoyed those illustrations, I'm sorry to say, they're gone. Bye-bye. Yep, (laughs) bye-bye. It's also the last televised story to use the Pertwee logo. The last Target book to use the Pertwee logo is the first edition of The Cybermen because it was published after. Starting with the publication of the next published book, Planet of the Spiders, in November of 1975, the Diamond logo, which began the following season with Pertwee but would mostly be associated with Tom Baker, would begin appearing on the covers. Just FYI, another thing about the Target book, there's a fascinating reproduction of a planning chart that Hulk used when novelizing the Sea Devils and it breaks down each episode into sections and then assigns those sections to page counts along with a map of sections of the story that needed stronger action or more development. It's really interesting to see how his mind worked Mm. as far as uh, pushing these things Mm. together. And speaking of Hulk and speaking of Terrence Dix, one nice bit of trivia I discovered just the other day, I was looking into a book called The Making of Doctor Who, which was co-written with Terrence Dix, it is technically a Target book, but we're not going to do it because it's nonfiction, so there's really not much we can discuss. He and Dix were the ones who regularized the standard usage of TARDIS in all caps, rather than T period, A period, R period, D period, I period, S period. Or TARDIS with the uppercase T and lowercase everything else, or in italics as it was in the 60s books. So that's why from in just about every Doctor Who novelization, except for the ones from the 60s, you'll see TARDIS written as an acronym, which is what it actually is. It, only the Radio Times in Britain uses that latter form with TARDIS capitalized and with everything else lowercase. <sighs> so now that we're past all that boring shit, um, let's have somebody do... I feel truly informed. <laughs> yes, I hope the readers do too, because that was a mouthful to get through. There was a whole hell of a lot there to cover. Let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Dalton, would you be willing to do that for us this time? Yeah, of course. Thank you. The Green Death begins slowly. In a small Welsh mining village, a man emerges from the disused colliery covered in a green fungus. Minutes later, he is dead. Unit, Joe Grant, and Doctor Who in tow arrive on the scene to investigate, but strangely reluctant to assist their inquiries is Dr. Stevens, director of the local refinery, Panorama Chemicals. Are they in time to destroy the mysterious power which threatens them all before the whole village? 
and even the world is wiped out by a deadly swarm of green maggots. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is essentially our story. It is known colloquially by both fans and non-fans as, as the one with were. the maggots. <laughs> as if it were an episode of Friends, which it kind of is in its own way. <laughs> So, oh, before we get on to anything else, Collier, Collier, I cannot say that Colliery. damn word. Colliery, thank you. I don't know what I have with L's and R's. Colliery is a term we don't tend to use in the States, but it refers to a coal mine and all its workings. All right, first impressions. Let's hear what you thought you were getting into with this one. Uh, Allison, you told us it was first. the last Malcolm Hulk we were going to read, so... For a lot of these books, I have one impression when I read them, and then I remember them in a different way. And Colony in Space is one of the books we've read that I've remembered the most and thought about the most. Uh, I think we just read that this this summer, in June or July, or this past summer. And I've been thinking about it again recently with the description of the living arrangements on Earth. And he said uh, people aren't meant to live like like battery hens. And spending the last six weeks living as a battery hen, <laughs> going back to <laughs> yeah, uh, some of the premises of that book, and uh, so I expected this to 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 be very good. Uh, I know that we're getting towards the end of Pert Wee Doctor as well, so I was looking looking forward to it as a combination that I like. Okay, and hopefully I didn't say this is the last Hulk book we were reading because we we yeah. actually had oh, okay, I misunderstood. Through. Well, yeah, I, but but I approached it as if it would be the last one I read. It actually surprised me that he didn't write the episode because it seemed to have so many similar themes to Colony in Space yes. about what it is to be human, about issues of class and international corporations, and uh, it's sort of interesting ways he deals with sociology and psychology. It seemed like it's sort of Malcolm Holt's greatest hits, and I mean that in a very positive way. So it, oh, it surprised yeah. me it was an adaptation of someone else's premise. It really is, and in fact, if anything. And I'll, I'll say this, and I'll probably get some heat for it. I'm not the biggest fan of the televised story, except for the first and last episodes, whereas Hulk really improves upon the televised story. So it's a shame that he didn't novelize other people's works more often, because I think you said once that you thought that he would be a good cleanup writer, and this proves it. It's really uh, a very good Well, at version. one point... I thought he was cleaning up a speech that he thought was ridiculous in the original. I mean, you told me he had written the original. I thought he was sort of poking fun at the other writer, talked about someone then gave a very long-winded and um, pretentious speech. Right. (laughs) He actually had written the original speech as well. Exactly. I I think I've a few times presumed he was adapting when he was not. Yeah, that was definitely Hulk's pretension and not anybody else's. Just so you know, we are getting another Hulk novel, not next time, but the time after. Wait, no, we're not. Ooh, I almost misspoke. <laughs> I would have been pilloried for that one. Um, you still had a really bad experience on the internet recently. I, I quite, have. Quite gun shy. <laughs> yeah, I have. I have. It's it, it's hard for the course, though. All right, the next Very story, sorry. let me think the next story is terrence dix then the one after that is i don't even know why i'm talking about this right now i was going to say this at the end of the episode but 
we're going to be covering the two Barry Letts novelizations of his two 1990s radio plays with Pertwee, because they're tech- one of them is technically a Target novelization, which is why we're going to do it. But in story order, it would come after the next one. So if we weren't doing that, then we'd be getting a Hulk novel in two more books. If we do it, then we're getting it in three more books. Anyway, so, it's and then that's the last one? Yes, that is the last one. <laughs> I promise you, that is the last one for sure. Unless I'm forgetting something else because I'm getting old and senile. But yeah. <laughs> Dalton, what was your first impression? Much like Allison, um, I wasn't remembering the detail about this being one of the last Hulk books, but I always enjoy Hulk's writing, so I was looking forward to that. Yeah, lot, lots of really great details added in here, it felt like. Um, really brought the story to life. There were some times where I thought the big bad was going to be something else, but it wasn't. Particularly with with all the mind control going on, I thought it could possibly be the master coming up, although I know you've told us that we weren't going to see him for a little bit. And also I thought possibly a reappearance of the Cybermen oh. um, due to the mind control. Um, oh that's interesting and with it being you know we've already kind of had a a story where they were using this other company to kind of hide the fact that they they were there on earth but either way yeah really really enjoyed this one and was excited to get through it okay terrific that it, that would have been an interesting rehash of the invasion, wouldn't it? If the cybermen had also decided expected to... that the boss would turn out to be a, one of the recurring villains. Oh, yeah. Because it certainly seems like it's going in that direction, doesn't it? It could have been the Great Intelligence, for instance. I mean, you could easily imagine, if you didn't know the story now, the Great Intelligence being behind all of it and somehow Yetis being powered by this chemical that they're producing, but... No, not that. Not that at all. In fact, if anything, it's a straightforward environmental story. And one also about, strangely enough, more so in the book, I would argue, about workers' rights, which is something that Malcolm Hulk, being the dyed-in-the-wool communist that he was, would have been very much Mm -hmm. on board with. Yeah, so where do we start with this? If we're starting chronologically, we should probably start with the coal stuff. And the only reason why I'm at all interested in starting with the coal stuff is because, uh, just full disclosure, since my family started out in Appalachia, I have multiple uncles who worked in the coal mining industry and at least two who died in mine collapses. So this story is very, I wouldn't say near and dear, but I knew exactly some of the things that they were talking about. Yeah. And what I didn't know about was all of this stuff at the very beginning that Hulk puts in, such as talking about the general strike of 1926, which his readers would have known about. But of course, we as U.S. educated people do not know anything about because it didn't happen to us. But uh, it was a big enough thing in British culture that it keeps coming up in their pop culture, including uh, Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited 
and there's an episode of Upstairs Downstairs that's specifically about the general strike of nineteen. There, there are American equivalents to the Battle of what mountain? I don't recall the name of the mountain. Oh yeah. The massive armed conflict between coal miners and basically a private army of I forget it was Pinkerton specifically, but yes. mercenaries yeah, hired okay. by the by the mining company. Yeah, the Union Busters, exactly that. I think that may have been uh, about 10 years later. I'm not absolutely certain, but that's one of those things that gets passed down through the oral histories of my family. I don't know the decade, but you can see same cause, same effect, same outcome as it turned out. So where do we start with this? I'm a little overwhelmed because there is so much to talk about. And like I said, I appreciate the sort of feeling of not finality, but a bit of melancholy that I know we're coming to the end of the third doctor. We're coming to the end of Joe, that we're coming to not the last Malcolm Hole, but to the end of the Hulk book we'll read. And uh, when we read the last one with the master, I didn't realize that that was the last story that Delgado had appeared in. So I kind of had a melancholy end of an era approach to it. Oh, yeah. Well, especially since Joe's leaving. In fact, let's talk about the elephant in the room, because (laughs) Joe leaves and leaves in a way that we maybe would not have expected. She gets married off. No, that's exactly what I expect every time they have an unattached male guest star. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which one is it going to be? I assume we will see it again. So I expected it before now. Yeah, uh, I guess you're right, because how many people have been married off? We've had Susan got married off. We had Vicky get married off, strangely enough, become Cressida. We've had... But Victoria didn't get married off. No, she, she just She went left. to move in with that family. She just disappeared. Yeah, she just <laughs> disappeared. But yeah, you're right. It's not the well, first time we've seen she kind of got adopted. Seen. Yeah, true. And it's, again, not the first time that we've seen it happen. Unfortunately, not the last time we'll see it happen, though, if I remember correctly, it's the next to last time we see it happen. <laughs> they didn't bother to marry off Jamie or uh, Steve, so it's... No, no. They're, uh, they're allowed to just leave. Yeah, yeah, they don't have to be attached, exactly. They, they can leave the TARDIS unescorted, as it were. Yeah, it's a terrible thought. So, Tony, what did you think of the romantic story? Uh, Well, here's the thing. I am actually going to turn that question back around on you because I'll tell you how I feel about it once we've discussed how it plays out in the book because it plays out slightly differently on screen, as is always the case. What did you think of it, Allison? They certainly gave him, gave Cliff a lot more characterization and personality and action that we ordinarily get with the, the love interest who's going to escort our companion off the screen. So, <laughs> right. Um, right. Well, he actually, he actually seemed interesting and, and suitable specifically. And I thought the story was going to turn out in a different way mm-hmm. because as soon as she was packing up and having her amusing conversation with the brigadier about how she was going to go visit Professor Cliff, I don't remember the fullness of his name, visit Professor Chubbs. Cliff and stay the world from panorama chemicals, I thought, okay, so he's going to be the love interest. But when they had kind of a weird fight in the middle i actually thought that they were doing something rather nice of showing that he wasn't really suitable for long-term companionship this oh. was just going to be a nice fling oh. <laughs> and okay. then they went through with it <laughs> well, what was what was the fight about was that when he was ignoring her and she went off to get yeah. the giant maggot yeah yes and neither one of them's being particularly horrible but i thought the characterization there is he's not really for a person who started a commune, 
he's a solitary individual dedicated to his work who's not really fit for companionship. Not oh, because he's cruel or abusive, but just because that's who and what he is. Right. I actually thought it was going to end with her deciding to, to stay with Yuna and the doctor. Basically, she had a lovely affair. <laughs> it's over now. Right. Well, I think I, I think I know a reason for all that, including the fight, but I'll get there in a second. Dalton, what did you think of it? reading it, I was a little bit annoyed (laughs) that it was happening. You know, it seemed very quick to me that my Joe was running away with a scientist, (laughs) but, but no, the fact that even, and and she even brings up that, you know, they were going to go study in Brazil, that he was the type of person that she seemed more in tune to even work with as opposed to the doctor you know she she mentions that when she initially got the job with unit she expected to be doing you know studies and experiments regularly and that's not the world she ended up in so this this was actually kind of something she had been looking forward to so yeah to me it was a little rushed but in the end, I didn't feel as angry or annoyed with it as some of the other characters we've had hmm. leave in the, in the same way Okay. I complained about Victoria being sort of adopted out, even though she seemed a little old for that, because I thought that would have been more in character for Victoria to go to school in a time later than her own and learn about all these, all these things and all these new developments in science that she wouldn't have had access to in her own time. This actually worked for me as a Joe going off to new adventures, as opposed yeah. to sort of retiring from the field to settle down, that she's going to have different scientific lady spy adventures since she's been having and that it wasn't such a, a sudden switch from the way she's behaved before and that her infatuation with Cliff's work and her sort of newfound political wokeness that goes so zero to 60 actually seemed age appropriate. Era mm-hmm. appropriate and age appropriate since I, I read her as being, you know, like 21, a very young adult, not, not a teenager, but sort of the whole thing having the first year of her career. According to the Sarah Jane Smith adventures, and according to a line the doctor has, she was 23 when she left. Okay, which, so it wasn't that far off. <laughs> well, she would, have, she would have been like 21 when she joined UNIT then. Well, I've been afraid of Mike Yates for months now. That she okay. was going to go oh, off God. with Box yeah. of Rocks, Mike Yates. Which is uh, not yeah. an insult to an actor, to the actor at all, but just as he's written. He's right? Well, not the luckily. sharpest tool in the shed. It's a good thing that they decided not to go that route because he was written as her romantic interest and it's good they didn't go with the expected route. Now, here's the thing that, well, let me just ask you both. Did you find the end of the book where Joe and the doctor say goodbye to be particularly rushed? Yes. Okay. What was, what was wrong with it for you? Uh, well, just the whole end of the book was just like, yep, and they did this, and they did this, and it was like two pages, it seemed. Let me fast forward in my PDF. But they're sure. always like that. They are yeah, always like that. Leave. But this one particularly was just like, boom, 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 done. Um, <laughs> boom, 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 let's go back to my room. <laughs> right. The end where Joe tells the doctor that she is going to leave is literally the second to last page. Yes. They're talking with Jones. They're talking about the soup. And then the doctor asks Joe about staying longer. And she says, I'm actually going to the Amazon with this dude right here. And then turn the page and there's the doctor leaving in Bessie. Well, in all fairness, the brigadier (laughs) said she had a couple of weeks of PTO coming to her. And this story only took about 48 hours. So maybe... (laughs) 
Maybe she'll be back. Well, <laughs> no, 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 no. That's I'm, wishful thinking. No, I'm being silly, but <laughs> yeah, she she won't be back until the Sarah Jane Adventures. But let me play for you the clip of her farewell at the end of that story because you're going to notice the one big flaw with this particular novelization. In fact, I'm surprised that more viewers haven't said something about it, but here we go. I'm not going to play you the whole thing from the beginning, but I will play you the bit that shows Mike Yates's reaction to, uh, you know, being passed over. Am I Mike? That's my drink. You go down to your uncle at United Nations, didn't you? It's only the second time I've ever asked him for anything. Look at the first time, can't you? You don't mind, do you? No, I don't. You might even be able to turn you into a scientist. Don't get too far away, will you? And if you do, come back and see us sometimes. You saved me a piece of wedding cake. Right. Oh, I nearly forgot. Your wedding present. Oh. It's beautiful. If you ever need to hypnotize someone. Hey, Joe, come and drink a toast to the happy couple, huh? But that's us. Hi, so it is. <laughs> Don't worry, Doctor. I know the left that is the most 70s looking dude I have ever seen 70s. Yeah. Katie Manning has joked that uh, he and she had the same hairdresser, so. Well, yeah, yeah. Actually, he looks totally physically and sartorially appropriate. I just want to let this play out because if you've never seen this clip, oh my God. Especially since if you watch this show on DVD and you listen to the commentary, Katie Manning starts crying during that last dialogue and she doesn't stop for the entire rest of the commentary. And yes, listeners, we're watching in silence as the doctor starts up Bessie and heads off into the sunset on his own. That's one of the most children's television TV kisses I've ever seen. It's an all ages kiss. Yes. And that's no, the sun's the other way. <laughs> well, it's in the background. That's the ending of the televised story. It was like, that was much better than I expected. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's much better than the book ending, which is, I've never understood it. I really just don't because in every other way and this is giving away how i feel about this book this book is such an improvement on the televised story in every single way but then you get to that ending and it's rushed and, and there was room like like i said the, the last page is a sentence there was a whole rest of the page that that could have been used to yeah. add something Exactly. I actually is, imagined it a lot like what you just showed us, but I think I was mentally superimposing uh, Steve's departure 
which is yeah. another one that you showed us, which was also mm -hmm. brief, but very palpably moist like that. And I mean that in a very positive way, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but also, you know, people tearing up in a way that felt quite, quite genuine and, and very in the moment, like you were there. I like that Cliff seems like an actual heartthrob of the era that a young girl would pick out in that era instead of a 30 or 40 something male writer's idea of who she should be attracted to. Yes, exactly. And that's not to be taken for granted, I think. No, not at all. And it helps very much that Katie Manning and Stuart Bevan had that relationship at that time. So they already have the obvious chemistry. Dalton, you were saying that it felt very rushed, their love story, and it's actually much more rushed on screen. If anything else, Hulk expands upon that love story so that it makes a lot more sense in terms of the book. Yeah. Especially when he goes to rescue her from the maggots. Okay. And you, you get that moment where he blurts out that bigger. he loves her. Yeah, and yeah. he blurts out that he loves her. We don't get that on screen. Mm. We get the rescue, but we don't get that. And it's little bits like that that Hulk contributes to the original script. But then he leaves he leaves money lying on the table, to use a phrase, with that very last <laughs> scene, because that is that's your money shot right there. Yeah. That last scene is incredibly affecting, and it's not on the page. Mm. Except for seeing the doctor cry at the end, which is lovely too. Yeah. Now, here's the other thing. One of you said something about why is it that it seems like she's being ignored by him in that one scene where they have the fight. And if you remember back to Terror of the Autons when she was introduced, her first meeting with Cliff and that fight and how she gets into trouble all have parallels in her meeting with the doctor. She ruins his dematerialization circuit in the same way that she ruins Cliff's experiment. Ah. Then later, halfway through the story, the doctor is ignoring her when she says, well, let me go and do something and I'll help you out. And he essentially ignores her and she ends up going off on her own and encountering the master and gets hypnotized and comes back and almost blows the doctor up in the same way that she puts herself in peril to get a giant maggot for Cliff. <laughs> yeah, I know. True. <laughs> A true the engagement love. gift of trend of the era. Exactly. <laughs> on a nice maggot. Who needs Zales of jewelry when you've got giant <laughs> maggots crawling around? Would you ever forget a partner who brought you a three-foot maggot? Oh, hell yeah. no. But then, <laughs> but then I'd be running away from them at full speed if I never want to see them again. Yeah. Well, it depends on the partner, of course. But that's the big thing, that he is, as she says in one line, a younger version of you. She, he is the doctor. Yes in a much younger form and in human form. Which is something that I actually found quite creepy and gross, but I always find that gross of a motif. Really? Why? I just don't like the sort of trope and motif where you have a person, um, select a romantic partner who reminds them of one of their parents. That just does not do it for me at all. Really? <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just find it repulsive. Hmm, the idea well. that you... That, that you <laughs> that, 
that it's a normal, healthy, happy thing to grow up to marry one of your parents in a younger form. <laughs> it's certainly something that we hear a lot in culture, don't we? We hear that that's almost the expected thing. You're going to marry your father. You're going to marry your mother. And it's like, God, no, you really don't want to. It may be true that you seek out a person with those traits because they're comfortable and familiar. Or in the case of somebody who's been abused by their parents, that's all they know how to love. But in her case, yeah, the, the parallel is definitely meant to be there. I thought it was as, as non-creepy as it could be with that just set out there on the table. It was more, I'm going to go have adventures with someone else now. Yes. Right. Um, rather than some kind of creepy, you know, I've always had a thing for you and now I've found someone age appropriate and available and human. I, yeah. I, I did not read it like that. Right, right. <laughs> now, picking up on what you just said about her going on to other adventures, this is the scene she has with the 11th Doctor when she comes back for the Sarah Jane adventures. And it's written by Russell T. Davis, so it's not badly written at all, <laughs> but it's also written for a children's series, so bear that in mind. So if you think that the music is kind of naff, there's a definite reason for it. Otherwise, <laughs> the scene is very effective. Mighty old battlefield just begging to be explored, because I'm traveling with Amy now and Rory. They got married, so I dropped them off at a honeymoon planet, which isn't what you'd think. It's not a planet for a honeymoon. It's a planet on a honeymoon. It married an asteroid. <laughs> the TARDIS. The Shanshi, not Amy and... Uh... Fortunately, I had all this wreckage to build the space-swapping doodah thing in the what's-it. So you've got a married couple in the TARDIS? Mr and Mrs Pond. <laughs> I only left you because I got married. Uh, and... Uh... Oh, wow, that was... stupid. Why do you say that? Well, I was a bit dumb. <laughs> Still am, I suppose. Now, what in the world would make you think that ever, ever, ever? We'd been travelling down the Amazon for months and we reached a village in Cristalino and it was the only place in thousands of miles that had a telephone. So I called you. I, I just wanted to say hello. And they told me that you'd left. Left unit. Never came back. So I waited. I waited because you said you'd see me again. You did. I asked you and you said yes. You promised. So I thought, oh, one day I'd hear that sound deep in the jungle. I'd hear that funny wheezing noise and a big blue box right in the middle of the rainforest. Because he, he wouldn't just leave. Not forever. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've waited my whole silly life. Oh, but you're an idiot. <laughs> well, there we have it. No, 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 but don't you see? How could I ever find you? You've spent the past 40 years living in huts, climbing up trees, tearing down barricades. You've done everything from flying kites on Kilimanjaro to sailing down the Anzi in a tea chest. Not even TARDIS could pin you down. Hold on. I did sail down the Yancey in a tea chest. How did you know? And that family, all seven kids, 12 grandchildren, 13th on his way. He's dyslexic, but that'll be fine. Great swimmer. So you've been watching me all this time? No. Because you're right, I don't look back, I can't. But the last time I was dying, I looked back on all of you, every single one. And I was so proud. Really? 
really is you. Isn't it? Hello. <laughs> Sorry, but we've got that lot back at home with the Shanshi. <laughs> yes, yes, and uh, I still need you, Joe. Now, that bag of yours, I can smell black currant. Is it buka oil? Hand-picked in Mozambique. Oh, perfect. These circuits need connectivity. Wonderful. Little tiddly draw. <laughs> All right. So, that is one of the scenes from that two-parter for the Sarah Jane Adventures. Well, and thanks, Tony. Now I have something in my eye. <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should bloody well hope so. We all should have had something in our eye at the end of the book. And that's the one flaw I think this novelization really has, that it doesn't give us that emotional oomph that that last scene in The Green Death did on screen, and that that scene that follows directly up upon it gives us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Oh, there's one other thing. Uh, Dalton, I heard you express surprise when he gave her the, uh, the crystal. Was that not mentioned at the end of the book? I missed it, if so. I don't recall. Yeah, I, I don't think it was. And if that's the case, that's another big problem. And I can't tell you even why it's such a big problem. Let's just say that the crystal from Metabolus 3, just as Metabolus 3 itself was, is this gigantic Chekhov's gun that's getting ready to go off. Yes, but we thought it went off when he used it to reverse the hypnotization. Nope, that, that was just to establish that it had properties that no other crystal has. So that when we see it again, it's not surprising that it's going to get used the way it does. In fact, it, it's going to be a Robert Sloman script again when we see it used. Okay, so is Metabolist in the on-screen episode? Because I thought it was tremendously funny action yes. comedy. And oh, I was right. wondering how, how it was represented on screen or if it was something he just sort of mentioned. Because it nope. was uh, we see it. We've, quite we've, a wild ride. Well, we don't see everything. We, we don't see everything that Hulk describes in the book because the, the budget just would not have allowed for that. We see him being attacked by <laughs> these ridiculously huge bird legs towards the end of it. <laughs> okay. When he first steps out the of the TARDIS. The old bird leg trick. We've seen that before. <laughs> yes. Right. When he first steps out of the TARDIS, we see him attacked by a tentacle, which is really quite terrifying, in fact. And that's really about it we hear lots of noise and they do shoot it in a quarry of course at night with blue lighting so it's really spooky and horrifying did they shoot it with a hundred uniforms who are racing to see who gets to rip into his chest first no 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 not a not a bit of it not a sausage yeah there's just not enough there's just not enough of a uh, budget for them to have done what hulk did on the page now he does render metabolus 3 as this tremendously terrifying place which is interesting because when we go there i think we can go there again i think that's exactly where they end up it's not nearly as awful as that but it's awful in so many other ways that's an improvement obviously yeah, it made me wonder how the, the Time Lords got it so wrong. I thought the idea was they were only there for a few hours, 300,000 years ago, and they were obviously setting the stage where things are going to be different, but I thought it would be peopled with hostile aliens rather than just literally every 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 bit of flora and fauna would try to kill him for sport. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant that you're absolutely right in the book, 
Hulk says that a Time Lord arrived there 300,000 years ago and spent maybe an hour and thought it was perfectly fine. <laughs> and, it seemed like the Doctor was there in just as much time and experienced a very much different but, it changed. But 300,000 years later. So it could very well be, even though that's really not enough time for any of those creatures to have evolved into the horrors that they became, but it could very well... Well, look at it this way. It's the difference, say, between landing on Earth in the current time... Not the current time, because all of Earth is horrible right now. But in the <laughs> current time, say you go to a lovely beach uh, in California, and you think, oh, this is nice, there's no snow, it's very temperate, it's beautiful. And then someone else from your race shows up on the planet and, say, ends up in the Amazon or the Sahara Desert or the Arctic. And they say, oh, they really got this wrong <laughs> because there's no indication that that Time Lord went anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I think, think that's, that's exactly what it is. Now, there's something else about that, too. There's something else specific about Metabulus 3 that I was going, oh, yes, at the end of Chapter 3, after he runs away from the blue unicorns, which we don't get to see. Oh my God, I would so love to see that. <laughs> I, I away... doubt it will be a high quality rendering. <laughs> no, certainly not. He gets back to the lab and says so much for holidays on Mobilis 3. Next time I'll try Blackpool, which is fine. Because of course Blackpool is, you know, the, the boardwalks of New Jersey. It's that sort of amusement type of... The thing is, the Doctor, when he eventually does go on that holiday in Blackpool, and it won't be for years and years, but when he eventually does, it's just about as bad. <laughs> so. I was personally warned of this, and I think it was, it was 2000, I was staying in a hostel, and uh, one of the people who worked at the hostel, I think, I think he was Australian, if I recall correctly, but the hostel in London, he would use it as base of operations. He would work there for a while, and then he would travel around different parts of Britain and Europe. And he advised never going to Blackpool. Instead, it was the worst weekend of his life. Oh, wow. No one should ever go there and expect <laughs> to have a good time. So I, I still have never been to Blackpool. Okay. <laughs> That's it doesn't seem just, to be a place people recommend as a vacation spot. Yeah, and I'm not. Or you know, sure. if you just if your career is such that you could work remotely from anywhere, have you considered Blackpool? It just doesn't come up. Now, now the other other interesting thing about, about Joe in the story, story in, this in this book, book I, should I should say, is, is that she's characterized very differently by Hulk as she as she, as she, as she was characterized differently in Space, space War. War. Because, because she's, she's a lot more feminist, feminist than she is, than she is normally. Oh, yeah. normally. Yeah. Well, and yeah. she seems to have just discovered the idea in a way that actually, it, on the one hand, it, I think it's intended to read as irritating and strident, but it's also, once again, age-appropriate zero to 60 as well. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's so much that Joe, the character, has just discovered it. It's that Hulk himself doesn't get to write Joe that often, but when he does, he writes her that way. Because as you recall, she had a line or two like that in Colony in Space, the Doomsday Weapon. And she had a line or two like that in Space War, when she was talking to the Draconian Prince and saying, you know, yeah, women should be allowed to talk. And when she had that interchange with the Ogron who said she's got to fatten up and be a good Ogron wife... And here we have it. <laughs> she said something like, oh, how's that for a plan or something? Yeah, right. exactly. I was amused and instead of like screaming and fainting, she makes a crack about it. Right, right, precisely. We don't tend to see that sort of variation in character 
on screen much at all, even though it's multiple writers writing the same characters because there are script editors like Terrence Dix who say, oh no, this character would not do that or say that. Let's, let's tone that down. It's one of the problems that Star Trek Voyager had, that the writing staff didn't really give a damn about consistent characterization, and that is why to this day, Kate Mulgrew feels that Captain Janeway was bipolar. Because judging from her behavior on screen, she had to have been. Well, yeah. yeah. But I think what we're getting at here is not that Joe has suddenly realized that she is a feminist, but that Hulk believes that she should have been written more that way. And there's probably something to that, because a young woman coming of age in the 70s would have been very interested in that sort of political movement, especially to the point of... I think Cliff has a line just in the novelization where he says, this will help mankind. And she says, do you always use the word man when you mean human being? Yes. <laughs> well, and he laughs and he says, I'm sorry. Now you'll think I'm not for women's liberation. And that and uh, indicates that he is, which is something we might take for granted now, but it would be very of the time for, like I said, for having, you know, older men compared to her older writing this story, it would be very of the time to have, her ultimate love interest she chooses to settle down with be someone who kind of mocks the idea and is sort of dismissive and then she falls for him anyway because what she really wants is a man who takes control of her life well, and that we did not have that story was wonderful. Well, I don't think he's so much dismissive as he No, that's is. what I'm saying. It's wonderful that he's not dismissive. Oh. That's the story I would have expected in the 70s. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Instead yeah. of being dismissive, he's like, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Now you'll think I'm not in favor of women's liberation. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's a throwaway moment, but it's one that I did not take for granted in value. Right. There we go. Because the doctor himself would never be dismissive of it, even though on screen he seems to be at times. You will see that in the next story. Trust me. But he's not. He's very much on board with this sort of thing, too. But as a male being brought up at that time, Cliff still comes from that position of privilege where saying mankind just comes without a, a second thought. Right. Whereas it obviously requires a second thought. It's like the, the same sort of slips of the tongue that someone who is, say, at <laughs> my age, might have when referring to someone who's non-binary and accidentally calling them he or she, because we're just not wired yet and used to the vocabulary and the grammar. It's not because of sexism or transphobia. It's because we're not used to saying it that way yet. And I think in Cliff's case, that's what it is. The parallels between the, their meetings are deliberate, and definitely that's one of the things that Hulk is putting in. Their meet cute is so much better on the page than it is on screen. It just doesn't <laughs> even compare. The most human human being. Yes, exactly. And the whole thing about serendipity, uh, I just want to make a point about that too. Oh, it's not really a word. He's just babbling. No, no, it, it, it is a word. <laughs> yes, that somebody in the nut hutch thought that it was not a word. And it's like, well, it's a made up word, but it, aren't they all? Mind blown. Oh, Magnum PU. I need a lead acid battery, 50 units of plasma, some bolt cutters, and something called a defrimbulator. That's a made up word. They're all made up. <laughs> Mind blown. They're all made up words, but serendipity was the name of the show that Katie Manning went on to be the presenter of right after Doctor Who, and Serendipity was kind of like this arts and crafts show. So 
little bit of, I mean, it wasn't even deliberate. It just was complete coincidence. So we've talked a lot about Joe and how much we're going to miss her. I'm sure you will as, as I, well, actually I should ask you, are we going to miss Joe? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. And it wasn't always something that I would have taken for granted. It took okay. a while to grow on me. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> That's almost a pun. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> it took a while to... <laughs> yes. I'm trying to I'm trying to form a joke about the green slime taking over and transforming into a green thing, but I, I can't quite bring it to pull it together. Well, hopefully we're not talking about the green slime, which is a really kind of spacey 1960s horror movie, which I would recommend to anybody because it's just hilarious. You believe it when you Yeah, if we're talking about fungus, though, I find it interesting that even in 2020, I just today pulled up Huffington Post and they had an article about how mushrooms and fungus may be what saves us in the future. And it's like, oh my God, they were talking about this in 1973 and we're still talking about it. Almost they found years. fungi that will eat polyurethane. Mm-hmm. Shame they didn't have it at Panorama Chemicals, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that's another thing. It's not called Panorama Chemicals on screen. They had to change the name because whatever they called it on screen, Global Chemicals, was too close to an actual company. Actual name. evil multinational corporation. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Let's tackle that. Let's tackle that. The fact that we, in 2020, are still talking about sustainability and how the planet may run out of food and we're still talking about multinational corporations such as Panorama Chemicals deciding what's good for Panorama Chemicals is good for everybody. Reading a piece earlier today about this being the 50th anniversary of Earth Day and how the founder of Earth Day, the name's escaping me now, people who were involved with founding Earth Day weren't even thinking about climate change as we know it yet. They were talking about air pollution and water pollution and weren't uh. even thinking about global changes in temperature. It was a sort of where are we now relative to Earth Day and what, what does it mean to people? And they were barely at the beginning of understanding how catastrophically we're able to damage our own environment in a permanent way. And this the, story feels kind of similar. The they feel irony. like they're in a very advanced state of awareness of what can happen and they're just at the beginning of understanding what can happen. Right. The irony of all that is that it was the oil companies that first did research into global warming, that Exxon in particular... Oh, yes. And then they, yes, they just presumed it. and Yeah, they knew it was going to happen. And they studied actually... Studied how well they would do. Well, they also took some strides in the late 70s to try to do something about it because they knew that the public would be very much on their side and would think, oh, they are trying to watch out for us. But they were also worried about, you know, killing their customer base. These days, they don't really seem to care about that much. But it's interesting that Stephen's speech to the Welsh workers at the very beginning, I have here in my hand a paper promising wealth in our time. Yeah. Um, I don't know if either of you recognize that at all. I thought it was a riff on peace in our time. It is. Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain. It's a deliberate echo of Neville Chamberlain's infamous speech and which he promised speech in our time after the Munich Compact that ceded Czech territory to Hitler to prevent war in 1938. Actually, Peace in Our Time may be quoted later when Bell is 
Well, in the book, they say he's spouting nonsense, but it's actually very well curated. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly. He's going back and forth between the Bible and Nazi propaganda, which is kind of interesting coming from a writer who you say is a communist. Yes. Right. <laughs> well, bear in mind that Nazism, that particular brand of socialism, has as much to do with actual socialism as our current system of governance has to do with democracy. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I'm not falling for this modern trope where people talk about, uh, not, not trope, uh, modern fabrication where people say, oh, national socialists, Nazis were socialists. It's, I, it's 100% a bad faith argument. No one believes it, including I, the people saying it. From what I gather, Hulk was not a sympathizer with any of the Nazi party's ideals. So for him to have injected it, and by the way, most of it is injected by Hulk, except for at one point on screen, Boss refers to Stephen Stevens as his little Superman. Uh, there's not a lot of that sort of parallel. There definitely is in the book, and I think what Hulk was doing was he took that Neville Chamberlain thing and the mention of uh, Superman and ran with it and made Boss into essentially what would have been... It, had he taken over the planet, it would have been very much a type of Reich instead of, you know, just doing what's good for you because I'm a computer and you're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The reason I say I thought it was interesting choices because he identified as a communist, I say as if it was a gender. So when Bell is attempting to, when his mind is attempting to fight and reject the conditioning of the boss, yeah, um, he's described as someone else as spouting nonsense phrases, but they're not. He goes back and forth between Nazi phrasing and what surprised me from what you said about Hulk is that all of the counter phrasing, the positive phrasing, it's mostly quotes from the Bible. Yes. Which is what I thought an interesting choice that he shows a lot of awareness of the Soviet system as well. Yeah. In oh, that, yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a terrific Soviet propaganda poster from the 20s uh, that translates roughly to why don't you try giving your child a book instead of beating him? <laughs> <There's> <laughs> yes. a so we start off the second scene with Cliff sort of between the, the villagers, former miners, and Panorama Factory. And it's made clear in several different direct and indirect ways that even though Cliff is there to save the village, uh, the village finds him irrelevant at best, yes. <laughs> possibly... <laughs> Possibly nuts, certainly loves to eat nuts, mm -hmm. <laughs> some kind of wacky vegetarian who's out of touch with reality. His accent is the accent of, you know, learning Welsh in university cool. classes in Cardiff as opposed to a native speaker from a rural area. Um, and it definitely uh, echoes the Soviet history of many very educated poli-sci revolutionary students who idealized Russian mm -hmm. peasants and then were very frustrated with the Russian peasants once they, they were actually trying to build workers' paradise. Right, precisely. <laughs> and the easy way to write this would be to pick a side, but Hulk does such a beautiful job of showing us the idealism of Cliff and where, it, where it's strong and where it's lacking and then showing us that the humanity and intelligence and weaknesses of the coal miners as well, because he has such an incisive way of showing us conversationally the fault lines that we're meant to think of as natural, but are actually mm -hmm. quite constructed Yeah, between mm -hmm. parties like that, between the sort of intellectual or hippie, often the same person, intellectual hippie, who is there to intercede on behalf of the common man, so to speak, who he's also fairly condescending about, but not yeah. on purpose. 
doesn't even realize he's being condescending about. And the salt of the earth person who has nothing but humor and contempt for a person like that, who they see as having never performed any kind of useful physical manual labor, may understand engineering, but never actually had to work with heavy equipment, etc. And uh, I he does such a beautiful job of instead of just telling these ideas, illustrating how those are manufactured divides that don't just happen, but are quite deliberately manufactured by, in this case, the Panorama Corporation. Mm -hmm. And in other cases, you know, other, other more powerful entities who naturally want to divide those two groups. And here we see actually a lovely scene where we're told Cliff is accepted because someone addresses him in Welsh. And I, I'm articulating this badly, but he has... Hulk has such good insight into the difficulties of actually trying to create an equitable society mm -hmm. and the humanity that reaches across that. He writes a much more pragmatic idealism than his characters are mature enough to express. We saw something similar to this in Colony in Space when there's the colony leader who's read a lot about farming before they get to the planet. We're going to grow a cover crop, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and the readers understand that he doesn't understand anything experientially at all about agriculture. He's going to be in for a world of hurt just assuming <laughs> and planning as if this will be an effective strategy when he hasn't actually been there, he has no soil tests, he doesn't understand the climate, he's never actually farmed before. And even though we're shown his shortcomings, he's also not belittled either no no and this is what i actually really love about these two books that we've read is how well holt communicates the sociology and the psychology that would speaking of strident if he were explaining them would sound like joe saying one too many times you know oh, don't you don't you think some of those ponies were female as well <laughs> <laughs> trying to communicate an idea um and communicating it badly in a way that other people are clearly going to hear is irritating and shallow. Hulk both understands how difficult it is to communicate that because he shows our, his characters communicating badly and then he communicates it so well mm -hmm. through these different social relationships he shows us. I don't right. have Hulk's gift of communicating it well. That's fine. What I do find, just to go off a few things that you said there, for one thing, this story tends to be not pilloried, but people look askance at it for its depiction of the Welsh because it tends to be a very stereotyped depiction of them. Whereas in the- Station or the episode? The episode. The book, however, does not do that at all. The televised version doesn't address quite how the townspeople in the, I'm gonna mess up this pronunciation, so, but I'm gonna try it anyway, how they look at him and think, oh, he's just some educated git from the city who's learned Welsh out of a book. It doesn't really go into that on screen. And so Hulk is going to show us, yeah, these are these are definitely salt of the earth working class people, but they're not stereotypes in any way. They have their own concerns, they have their own attitudes. For that they're matter, also not idealized. No, they're not. They're also given some interesting words to say about the treatment of minors in England because that also does not come up on screen. That whole speech that Bert has with Joe when they're trying to make their way out of the mines and he tells her what it's like to work down there and about the mine collapses and all of that. Things that spoke directly to me as, you know, the nephew of somebody who died in a similar situation. That wasn't on screen. So Hulk is very definitely making sure that these characters are humanized, they're not idealized, 
that he doesn't have a character like Winston Smith in 1984 who says that if there's any hope at all, it lies in the proles. Not realizing that the proles couldn't give two shits about revolting and that they are revolting, but in a very different way. It's, it's exactly that sort of thing. Now, an episode t- of All in the Family where Archie Bunker is uh, saying something dismissive about a bunch of uh, hippies marching in the street, whatever, and Edith says, oh, like you were marching with your union in the 50s? <laughs> no, that's completely different. Yes. <laughs> Nothing <exactly>. alike. <laughs> the other thing about the televised version is that, that it kind of does present Cliff Jones and the people at the uh, Not Hutch as hippies. Except it well, they're hippies so- in the book, too, but they're just not stupid. Yeah, and they're they're treated about as sympathetically as you'd imagine a, an outfit like the BBC would treat them in the early 70s well enough. Certainly there would have been people watching at home that would have said, oh, this again. And yet the sympathies of the story are very definitely with those more progressive ideals as opposed to what Stevens and Panorama and Boss represent. Well, similar to the way that Hulk shows us this supposedly natural cultural divide between the intellectual hippies and the out-of-work mining villagers. I don't know if they're all out of work. I think some of them are supposed to work at a chemical plant now. Uh, But he has this great sequence that at first does not seem like it's going to be a great sequence where Joe wants to go down into the pit to help rescue, I believe it's Die. A DAI, right. I might be pronouncing it incorrectly. Yeah. And Bert and Dave are saying, no, women don't go down to the pit. And then she says the most <laughs> stereotypical thing about you know, how some of the pit ponies back in the day were probably female as well. That's like a, a someone making fun of a feminist or something <laughs> that right. a young feminist would actually say. Uh, but she points out that she has all this uh, training as a medic where when they get down there, they may or may not know how to treat him. But when she gets down there, she'll know how to set broken bones, etc. So she talks her way down there. And on the way down, she's alarmed at how quickly this elevator is moving. And of course, we, she doesn't yet know that that's because the brakes are sabotaged. And Bert talks about when he first took this elevator down, he was 14 and how terrified he was. Mm-hmm. And he does mm-hmm. this lovely talk on what mining culture means, but he talks about you know, it also means that you're a man. Yeah. And what an insightful pairing it is where he would say that women don't go down in the pit because it's dangerous. It's for their protection. Mm-hmm. And then he's talking about being a young boy <laughs> going mm-hmm. down in the pit and it's dangerous. But it's okay because it makes him a man. And it's sort of the subtle messaging that he was given that it was okay for him to be in terribly dangerous conditions as barely more than a child because it would give him this status and this interesting sort of way that it's, it's a common men rights activist, and I say that in a sneering, derisive way, um, <laughs> referring to self-identified MRAs, not the concept that mentioned of rights. It's a standard argument to say women should not have the same rights and the same compensation as men because they don't take on dangerous jobs like mining. Talk about death rates. And if you respond to one of these people with, okay, so you uh, advocate really strict workplace safety regulations, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't want all these men to keep dying and men to keep dying in the mines. You... <laughs> You advocate for more uh, safe and humane condition for all these men that you hear crickets. And I'm, I'm greatly simplifying the, the exchanges that one has. But yeah, yeah. The fact that mining makes you a man is supposed to be a deterrent to demanding that mining not okay. be as unnecessarily dangerous. And Hulk 
is so good at seeing and showing the different ways that people are divided by class and gender. And he doesn't go into ethnicity in great detail, but he uses language as a stand-in for that mm -hmm. in a way that's entirely to the benefit of, in this case, Panorama. Mm -hmm. And it's pop fiction. It's not great art, but it's hard to think of another writer I've read who demonstrates that so fluidly. I find it also interesting that in humanizing the characters in the story, Hulk goes as far as he does to humanize even Stevens. I'm sorry, that came out exactly. That <laughs> <laughs> Stevens is humanized so strongly as well because he comes off as this stereotypical bad guy on screen, and it's only at the end when he seems to break boss's control that you realize, oh, this is somebody who's been controlled this whole time. He hasn't been thinking anything during all of this, and yet from the very start we get Stevens doing things like passing off his lunch menu as the letter that he's gotten, in the same way that Joseph <laughs> Carthy would have just held up whatever piece of paper he had at the time and saying, I know of at least 60 card-carrying communists in Congress, which I'm sure is something that Hulk would have added in. But all of that stuff about, for instance, Stevens, there is this lovely bit, this internal dialogue in chapter five that I want to bring us, our attention to for a minute, where he says to himself, what the world wanted was more and more petrol and diesel for industry, airplanes, and road vehicles. As for pollution caused through the continued use of oil, that was the price mankind had to pay. But in time, Dr. Stevens believed even this problem could be solved. Professor Jones and his followers lived in a world of make-believe. The clock of technological progress could not be turned back. And that sounds a lot like something that someone would now say to justify our continuing pollution of the environment, and yet there's also humanized quality to it that we didn't get from the character on screen. I agree. It's, it's challenging to humanize a character like that. Yeah. And he even, he even follows that up with saying it saddened the idealistic side of Dr. Stevens' thinking that nothing was for nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so even Stevens... <laughs> Stevens believed he has an <laughs> idealistic side to him, despite what Boss does to him, which is apparently some form of brain washing, even though that one illustration makes it look like he's sitting on the toilet and having a really bad time of it with some headphones on. Okay, there, there's the drawings in the book. The one time we see... Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. He looks like he's listening to music and trying to take the worst yes. that anybody could have. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> it's definitely mind control. It's definitely brainwashing. And yet he's not that far from it to begin with, it sounds like. Because mm -hmm. he refers to boss as his friend, even at the end of it. Dalton, we've been doing a lot of talking. What about you? <laughs> I expect to be edited mercilessly, and in fact, hope I am. Oh, you will be. Anyway, Dalton. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just looking through my notes. There's this great bit. There's like a whole, maybe half of a chapter um, with the ma one of the maggots. Yes. It's, it's from its perspective. Yes, I love that. <laughs> and, it's, and, and it's really creepy and gross uh -huh. and uh just it hunting is just 
wonderful. And uh, I just have the, the last little bit of it highlighted where it says, now inside it was flesh and the sensation was wonderful. <laughs> and I'm just imagining this maggot just full of the mouse, just uh, like licking his chops and just more. I want more. <laughs> that whole bit, just focusing on the maggot itself was really creepy and and wonderful Mm -hmm. that's one of the most famous parts of this book and it's an echo in fact one of the reviews that i pulled from online reminds us that that's an echo of his novelization the cave monsters because we saw that we got that entire chapter from the silurian's point of view Mm -hmm. in that book so that's something that hulk likes to do well, I'd say he, he's the master of the capsule backstory, but I did not expect that he would do a capsule backstory of a maggot as it's being hatched with a flashback to when it was, I would say, not in utero, but when it was still in the egg. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Remembering what it was like to develop. Mm-hmm. I, I will point out a plot hole in both the on-screen story and the book, though. Mm-hmm. They're eggs. What is laying those eggs? Right. I I wondered the whole time, where did these things come from? Yeah. And it's never really stated. It's never stated where the maggots come from. They just happen to be down in the mine. And it seems like this major plot hole, there's no other way to describe it. You just have to accept that somehow they got down there. Just, Just the same way you have to accept that in this version, we're suddenly being asked to imagine coffee made from petroleum byproducts. I thought the list of right. <laughs> I, said, oh. I, I thought that was very funny though. The uh, whiskey made from wood pulp <laughs> and sherry <laughs> from whale sherry made from whale glue. Well, yeah. Except that's exactly <laughs> the way these corporations were thinking at the time, and it's not too far removed from our own reality. You remember the dust up a few years ago when it was revealed that Subway's bread was made from essentially the same material as yoga mat plastic. Except it's not. It's like one molecule off or something. But yeah, it's essentially the same thing. This is a, I had a friend of a friend who worked for Kraft Foods for a while. I shall not, shall not name the person lest, lest the Kraft Hinch people come and whack her. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, yeah, that's sort of what, that's a part of what she would do. You know, a chef would create a, a meal and then you try to figure out how to simulate that meal mm-hmm. <laughs> using cheaper, worse, uh, non-food products, food-like well, products. It's not that much different from what that one chef here in Chicago does, Alanea, for that restaurant kind of reproducing flavors from different materials yeah. that aren't the thing, but actually are just as tasty and nutritious as the thing itself. Which goes back to the whole thing of the the fungus being used in the book for almost all of their foodstuffs and also, ironically, to kill off giant maggots. Yeah. Yeah. Serendipity, yet again. They're talking about Beyond Burgers. Yes. So that part the villagers were correct about. They they really were vegetarians. It was worse than nuts. It was just all shrooms all the time. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And it is counterpointed, and you're right to say this earlier, Allison, it is counterpointed between Christianity and Nazism. In fact, I am wondering now, because I always assume that Hulk may not have been all that strongly religious, but having read this book and now having reminded myself that in The Doomsday Weapon, the doctor tells the colonists, 
what they need to do and say a few words over the body, and that's a very Christian ritual. And whenever Bell babbles, it is directly that sort of thing, even down to quoting, of all people, Hans Joost, who almost nobody has ever heard of. I hadn't until I Googled that phrase, what is it, whenever I, someone says culture, I get my gun. I reach for because my gun. Everything, everything else in there was a, was, a, was a famous quote, and that was one I was not familiar with at all. Yep. Wenn ich Kultura, ein sichere ich meine Browning. When I hear culture, I release the safety catch on my Browning. It's from a play by a playwright named Hans Joost, who was very closely associated with Nazism, and that line tends to be misattributed to Himmler and Goebbels and Goering, because it sounds like something they would say. Yeah, but, close yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's that weird ping-ponging between Nazism and Christianity, and the ping-ponging between environmentalism and capitalism at its extreme, which is what panorama chemicals is meant to be and for that matter so is boss if you think about it because boss we haven't even really talked about boss is the epitomization of technology it's going back to votan whom we remember from the war machines except this one seems to have evolved on its own which is strange it's a form of ai that's just gone completely insane and it's gone insane because it's been programmed to make mistakes in the same way that humans do. And what's the biggest mistake that humans ever made? Nazism. Yeah. Well, it's in, I feel I might just be projecting things here. I feel that Hulk is both in Colony and Space, which I just cannot and will not shut up about. <laughs> and in this book, I would say the Green Death, but apparently it's the Maggot one. Um, <laughs> in Colony and Space and in the Maggot one. The mining company in Colony in Space and the chemical company in the Maggot One both work as multinational rapacious corporations and as the Soviet Empire. Yes. In, in ways that are interestingly interchangeable. And I, mm -hmm. I feel like in some ways, it made so much sense when you said that he was a communist. I feel in some ways he is talking about the Soviets all the time. Yeah. And he's extremely acutely aware of what their failings were and why their way of attempting to realize this equitable workers paradise did not work at all. And in fact, in, in many ways came to replicate systems that they had been attempting to create. Yeah, precisely that. And like I said, maybe that's not what he's doing, but it, it works whether or not he's doing, he's doing it on purpose. Oh, I think it's deliberate. I think that that's very much. Well, normally you'd be critiquing one or the other. And it's interesting the way he fuses those critiques. Yeah. And looking ahead, I'm not going to say which book, and I'm not going to say how it happens. He's going to do it in that last book that we're going to read of his, too, that we're going to see that same sort of clash between differing ideologies that seem to have nothing in common, but may also have everything in common, that may actually be borrowing parts of each other, if that makes sense. Because I mean, it doesn't happen in this story, but I think, for instance, of people on the extreme left who are just as violent about people being orthodox in their views as people on the extreme right are. That we don't see that in the nut hutch at all. But we could certainly imagine environmental terrorists coming out of a background like that. 
the same way that we can imagine extreme capitalism leading to the sort of fascism that Boss seems to idealize and even epitomize. Well, another hat trick that he manages to pull off is that the sort of lazy both sidesism way out is to ridicule the idea of being idealistic. Yes. And he doesn't do that. No, not at all. What else? I know we've been at this for a while and we've barely even scratched the surface. My notes for this book were probably longer than any notes that I've ever written for any of the books that we've looked at because there's just so much to cover. It's so thick. That's what she said. Don't you dare. As a text. We should have some of Panorama's beverages here. (laughs) God. Well, only if that coffee from petroleum byproducts actually has some caffeine in it. Because could certainly use it. The changes. Lots of changes Hulk makes. Most of them to the good. Obviously not the ending. But the fact that he has Boss say, Today, Lenfefach, tomorrow the world, and the doctor responds with, Adolf Hitler said something on those lines. He lost the Second World War, you know. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, uh, there's uh, just some funny, funny bits that I have kind of highlighted. When the doctor is uh, going to go back into panorama chemicals and he's dressed up like the milkman, and he just starts mumbling on about the story about the dad and the son and um, <laughs> how, how things were done in the past. And the guard just kind of, eh, whatever, go inside. <laughs> 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 like, like whatever get out of here i'm tired of listening to you and then it just something else i was i was looking at in my notes there's the member of the commune that is in the caftan and everyone yes. thinks that he's you know he's just some other hippie guy and lo and behold he was he was in the military himself yeah that also is not on screen though i think what they what hulk has done is he's taken a joke that he wrote out of the televised version and put it back in here. Because on screen, when the brigadier talks to the Minister of Ecology, he ends up having the phone passed to the Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister chides him for giving Global Chemicals a bad time of it. And the Prime Minister's name is Jeremy. And that would have been the name of, oh God, I'm going to forget his last name, but... He was the leader of the opposition party at the time that the story was made, part of the Labor Party. Okay. And Barry Letts, obviously, since they were setting these stories in the near future, he was hoping that the Labor Party would win out in the next elections, and they didn't. So that isn't in the book, because that would have been published after those elections had taken place. So I think that's why he names the ex-Colonel Jeremy. I think it's meant to be a gloss on the same thing. (laughs) But yeah, that character does not occur at all in the televised version. Nancy, for that matter, isn't given nearly as much as she's given here. Ugh, Nancy. Nancy. (laughs) Aw, Nancy. (laughs) Keeping all your mushrooms out in the the outhouse, (laughs) which is not an outdoor toilet, by the way. If you don't shit where you eat, why would you store food where you shit? It's just an attached shed. So. Yeah. And there's the, the bit at the end where the doctor's making, uh, he says he's making an amino fraction and Nancy replies, I can do that. I'm not only a mom here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is on screen as it turns out. And that's all. That's all, about as much as she gets to do. Yeah. It's kind of sad, really. But there's so many 
so many fun things here. So I suggest that we should wrap this up by talking about the fun bits, because my God, the story is heavy. Yeah. There's one last thing I want to hit before we have a good time. Okay. (laughs) One last thing I want to do to delay our good time. All right. Well, just thinking about, you know, this is a series of books mostly for young people. Like how many insightful things Hulk is showing them about how Stevens manipulates other people verbally. The quick quote here I want to read. Dr. Stevens arched his fingers as though about to deliver a lecture. There are emotional, sentimental fools who would delight in things plant closed down. I refer to Professor Clifford Jones and his following of hotheads. And under no circumstances should our work be prevented from continuing. And there are three or four scenes in which he refers to people under his command who are starting to turn against him being emotional. He refers to Cliff is being emotional. He refers to the villagers as being emotional. Yes. Um, anyone who opposes him is emotional and irrational. And then we get to this origin story of how he came to sort of meld with the boss. Basically, he was vulnerable because he was lonely. Yeah. And that's, because of his own emotions. That is a dynamite thing to read as a teenager, to understand that when the critique of emotionalism is leveled at you, it can be accurate, it can be legitimate, but it's also used to dismiss any sort of moral stance as well. Yeah. And this is a terrific character to learn that about. Oh, yeah. And to, and to show that the villains in the piece are brainwashing the emotions out of these otherwise emotional characters who have full lives of their own. We find out, for instance, in the, tel- in the novelized version that the guard at the gate was a bus driver yeah. and somehow got co-opted into this whole thing and enslaved. The boss isn't trying to drain the emotionalism out of them. He's promising a different emotion, promising yes. happiness, promising mm-hmm. satisfaction under the guise of being free of emotionalism. It's just it's, it, using emotionalism while ridiculing it and that's right. such a common strategy and it's so hard to see uh, in the moment by marrying humanity and technology literally in the book because boss starts making these terrible jokes about the two of them being <laughs> yes. together <laughs> and, and won't stop makes like four or five <laughs> yes exactly in fact the best one was the very last one he says uh do you know any just cause or impediment why Dr. Stevens and all the people on yes. Earth should not be my slaves? Yeah, and he says this to the doctor, of all people. In fact, Allison, I thought about you because I made a note here. Boss because you fa- mailed me a pair of headphones. Well, that too. But <laughs> boss, I think they become one with the boss. Yeah, so you can sit on the toilet and have a really bad dump while listening to it. Yes, boss and its attitude on free will reminds me just a little bit of Westworld. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're the third season that's now setting up. I haven't seen the third season, just the first two. I am watching it now. And dear listeners, definitely binge that while you're on lockdown because it, it's well worth it. It really is. But that's among many funny things. What else? <laughs> that was a terrible segue, but what else? What else? You know, I'm flipping through screenshots because there was a lot more humor in here than the previous Hulk ones we've read. It wasn't quite Donald Cotton levels, but... no. Lots of good, fun moments. Well, the maggot was my favorite. Yeah, maggot's point of view, and that lovely scene between them. When speaking of maggots, when when he goes <laughs> to rescue her and he says, "Can I kiss you again?" I hope so. She closed her <laughs> eyes, waiting for his lips to touch hers. Stay absolutely still, he said. 
I am absolutely still. She said, her eyes still closed. <laughs> he said, we have a little friend in here with us. Don't move because there's a maggot in there with them that they don't even notice until she's uh, called for help. But that is just hilarious. Well, something else that's actually not so funny, but it does tell us this weird thing about the companion's paradox, that they have this intense relationship with the doctor, and yet they really don't know him at all. Yes. And he even feels if one of them gets an attachment to somebody else other than him, he's actually hurt and jealous to the point that he takes, as Hulk puts it, an almost childish satisfaction that yes. he spoils her day. Uh, I was just going to say that, yeah. It was kind of a weird beat. What did, what did you think of it? What did you think, Dalton? It just, it, it felt in a way uncharacteristic, but at the same time, I get that because it, in some ways it's like, Joe's the doctor's companion and she's not supposed to be going to play with anybody else. She's my friend. And, and yeah, so I, I feel it. I understand it. I know where it's coming from. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause we've all been that kid. That's mm-hmm. like spoiling someone else's fun just because you know, like they were supposed to be doing things with me. Yes. <laughs> and weirdly enough, Joe understands it because you get that lovely sequence where it says he knows I've fallen in love. She thought to herself, she felt rather sorry for the doctor and wondered why he had never married. Were there, she wondered, Lady Time Lords? Did Time Lords get married and have babies? How old was the doctor? She realized there were many things she didn't know about him. Yeah. And that's true of all of them. And it, but it also goes back to the fact, and we've said this before, that the John Pertwee doctor, the, the third doctor of all the doctors, is possibly the most human of all of them. That he is not alien in the same way that Troughton was or that Hartnell was. That he lives on Earth for most of his time and he might as well be human in so many ways. So it's such a refreshing thing when we get the fourth Doctor who, uh, well, you'll see. (laughs) (laughs) So fun bits. More fun bits. The Brigadier saying that he feels lonely without Sergeant Benton. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I love yeah, the, the way Brigadier it, gets uh, more, speaking of humanization, gets better characterization in this novel than he has in almost any of the others. Yes. He continues to surprise us in ways that actually make sense within the character. Uh-huh. Normally he's just sort of a very well-starched uniform who comes in and barks at people. And Well, remember the way Hulk wrote him in The Cave Monsters? That that was the first time we'd seen the Brigadier mm-hmm. fleshed out fully. And oh, he loves yeah. doing that. He loves the character of the Brigadier and he loves to do things with him rather than make him the stuffed shirt that he sometimes ends up being on screen. Um, there's the bit when uh, the Doctor and Joe are in the minecart and Joe says, I feel sick. The Doctor says, then pretend you're out sea and lean over the side. <laughs> <laughs> and, and before that, he's chiding her for not helping him. Yeah. It's like a, a couple more goes and I should have done it, he said, adding without much help from you. The show suddenly realized she was panicking and not helping. I'm yeah. sorry, doctor, I'll give you a hand. Two would be better, he said. <laughs> <laughs> They're really snarky with each other, and I love that. Well, he's very fixated on, or he's fixated on Joe being disgusted by the maggots, and he finds that very close-minded and primitive. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, just because you associate them with death doesn't mean they don't have a right to be alive. <laughs> we talk right. about this when they're not chasing us. <laughs> Well, Benton even has a line about that later. And again, it's Hulk, not the televised version, where Benton says something along the lines of, doesn't it seem like the Doctor is always sympathizing with the monsters that we kill? It's not even human. And the Brigadier says, well, 
You have to remember, he's not. Except the last book where he slaughtered them with glee. Yes. <laughs> well, that's well, Dix again, isn't it? Yes, but that's, that's why... And they're it, Daleks, yeah. Yes, but I still say it merited some comment because it, yeah, it is out of character. Daleks don't get the same people dispensation. Mm-mm. Well, yeah. We were talking earlier about the bit where they're deciding whether Joe should go down in the mine and um, Bert uh, says, I'll take her with me. Perhaps she could be useful. We must get a helmet to fit you with this. Although with a head as big as yours, that might be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's not very kind to Joe on no. the page. Yeah. Is that is Bert the one she goes down the mine with? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought that that actually turned pretty well on the page because, you know, at first we have, her dealing with it verbally very badly, even though her argument is correct. She's making all the kinds of arguments that would alienate them. And we see him being kind of a troglodyte. But then we see as they descend down into the mine shaft and they're trapped in the elevator and they shimmy down the rope, etc. We see them getting along really well, really quickly. Yeah, that's true. And being very mutually empathetic as well and both admiring what the other one can do. That's true. Maybe the only reason that I was thinking that that wasn't happening is because on screen, that sort of empathy is, almost seems like it's there from the start. Well, we would expect for him to, to basically be stupid and brutal or for her to turn out to be useless, and we don't have either one of those things. Exactly. And those lovely Oscar Wilde half-quotes... To lose one prisoner may be accounted misfortune. To lose two spikes of carelessness. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Cliff even thinking he knew he was absent-minded, but he'd never misplaced a person before, at least not that he knew of. <laughs> um, and then there's the bit with the brigadier and Joe kind of deciding, you know, she's going to go to go see this professor and the brigadier's going to Panorama. And he says, unlike you, Miss Grant, I have an open mind about Panorama. There are times, sir, said Joe, when I think you have an open mind about everything, meaning I have no opinions, meaning that it's important to have opinions and to stick to them. So she just kind of zings him. And he comes back at her a little bit. I, I mean, not in a bad way. Yeah, he's... he says, I suspect that this conversation is verging on insubordination. Best of luck. <laughs> yes, he smiled to show he meant no harm. Yeah. Yeah, we don't get any of that on screen. We just have the brigadier dropping her off at the nut hutch and wishing her the best of luck. But to have these two colleagues essentially having this discussion about why his work is probably aiding and abetting the enemy and her work is meant to be helping. And yeah, it's, it's pretty lovely the way it's done. Well, in a lazier story, the brigadier would have been easily suckered in by Stevens. Yes, and we see him pretty quickly figuring out what's going on and trying to actually be, well, he's not literally a civil servant, uh, trying to be a public servant, if you will, and not being able to do what he wants to do. And it would have, even in this series, in many stories, I think we would have seen him just fall for the line that the patriotic thing to do was to put himself at the disposal of the multinational corporation and be and he, bumbling, bornering on evil. And we didn't have any of that. He pushes back against that in a very deliberate way. In fact, he has a line later where he says something along the lines of, it used to be that we were told what to do by the prime minister and our elected officials. And now the multinational corporations are telling us what to do. 
And that's mm -hmm. downright, there it is. I recall a time, Dr. Stevens, when Great Britain could regard itself as a sovereign state, answering to no one but its elected parliament and its monarch, the brigadier said. Now it seems we can be told what to do by international business companies. That's downright woke in terms of the brigadier. Yeah. And of course, nothing he says on screen is anywhere like that. It does lead him to put Mike Yates in harm's way. Oh, God. Okay, we have to talk about Mike Yates for just a minute. I don't wish him ill, but I'm okay with him being in harm's way. <laughs> okay. Well, the only reason I bring it up is because it is a, another Chekhov's gun. Yeah. Mike, Mike Yates is going to get a little bit of a uh, miniature character art because of this. And another, and of course, the next book that Hulk writes, it's going to be, we're going to see more of it, which is probably why it's here. He's not a bad character. I just didn't want him to be the love interest. It's the only no. thing I hold against this fictional person. No, no. And that's fine. He is going to have some bad effects as a result of what happens to him at uh, Panorama Chemicals, as we'll oh. see. Yeah. I actually like that. Yeah, so we get some something bad, but that, yes, that, carried, that there's carry through from another story. To show that you've heard me complain about this before the in the in the new series when a character undergoes what should be a completely transformative experience and has forgotten it within two episodes. Precisely, but it doesn't happen in this case. We do. There are going to be some long-ranging consequences that go on with this, which is going to be interesting. Interesting for 70s television as well, when things were still so strictly episodic. True. And, of course, The Doctor and Drag, which is far... I didn't even think about it that way. Oh, my God. It yes. is far, far worse on screen than it is on the page. Hulk, luckily does not write it the way it was on screen because even the director thought that John Pertwee took it way too far to the point of ad-libbing with Richard Franklin to the point that Richard Franklin almost breaks character on screen. It's, it's mm. funny, but oh, dear God. Can we say one word? I like your handbag. Do you? Well, watch out I don't smush you with it. Yeah, it almost pops you right out of the story to be honest. So, shall we go to Goodreads? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Two hours later, yes. Let's go to Goodreads, as we always do, for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings, etc., etc. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is a respectable 3.73. Ken gives it the full five stars and says, one of the best Pertwee stories gets the perfect novelization treatment by Hulk, the show has always tackled relevant issues, and talk of oil replacing coal would have been a hot topic during the mid-70s. The characterization is vastly improved upon this novel, as Joe and Cliff slowly falling for each other feels more authentic. I also like the scene from the maggot's point of view. It's a nice shortcut to keep the plot moving, whilst also a throwback to the Cave Monsters novel. Mel gives a more qualified four stars and says, After a mostly positive review, Joe's quite odd in this. At first, I thought it was an early episode for her when they decided she was going to be a women's liber and kept calling people on their sexist terminology, which given Pertwee's tendency to be a bit condescending was probably good balance. But it turned out to be her last episode. There's completely unbelievable romance with the hippie scientist. They seem to have fallen in love after having one conversation and spending the evening together. <laughs> then they kissed once. Then she decided to leave the doctor and marry him. It seemed as silly as when fell in love. I'm not telling you who that is, by the way. She references it. I'm not going to say who it is. 
particularly as Joe was there to represent women's independence. I know when she returns to Sarah Jane this autumn, which is the Sarah Jane Adventures, she's going to have her grandson with her, and I'm wondering if he will be related to the same scientists or if he'll be rewritten. And of course, we know the answer to that. In In Universe, she marries Cliff and has multiple children with him. In the real world, they date for a few more years, I think, and just are good friends now. Still, it was nice to see her all competent and active and not just standing around screaming. There was a bit of that with the maggots. The Doctor and Brigadier were brilliant, bickering all the time like an old married couple. I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere hidden away on the internet is some Brigadier Doctor slash fiction. Oh, I doubt it's hidden. No, oh no, it's I'm not sure it's readily available. It's there. Just have to type it into your Google search. It was interesting to see the Brigadier so much out of his own and having to take orders from the company and the miners. Our own Goodreads group has two entries. Michael gives it a three and says, I read this one back in the day and then listened to the audiobook when it was released a few years ago. And the thing that stands out the most after all these years, the section that focuses on the maggot and its POV. You have to love Hulk for having the audacity to do that in a novel. As for the story itself, it works pretty well. Another example of Hulk showing how you can tell the same story in different ways from the screen to the printed page. And finally, our good friend T.E. Hodden gives it a 3.25 and says after a couple paragraphs of praise for the book, what is unusual for a Hulk book is that some of the messages seem muddled and changeable. The self-sufficient professor who wants to make the world cleaner and improve the lot of all mankind also apparently considers it important that men be real men and that the Welsh know their place digging coal, which is apparently a more noble pursuit than burning oil. Yet a couple pages later, we learn his own farm is built upon a hydroelectric generator and he dreams of clean energy. It seems too many political ideas, the hardships of mining communities facing mass layoffs, the environmental concerns of the time, fears of pollution and smog, pulling characters in too many directions, and there are times that contradict each other, which could have been an interesting dynamic to explore in a longer book, where more factions could be represented, but by necessity this is boiled down to the good and the bad along clear-cut lines. This is a great Doctor Who story. But there are times when it feels like it could be a great story by any standard, but doesn't have quite the page, count, or the time to breathe. Allison, what did you think out of five stars? I'm going to go 3.5, which is, I think, the highest I've ever been. I, it's, <laughs> right after I've managed to astonish Dalton. <laughs> That's all right. It's, we're recording this on 422, so it's not quite a 420 joke, but go ahead. <laughs> so, I, I did not go to 4.2. Um, it's, it's not a perfect book, and I, I agree with that last reviewer that it's a great Doctor Who story. It's not going to be an all-time classic. And yet, once again, I, I use that informal measure of what sticks to the ribs. And normally I finish the book in the hour before we start recording. Yes. Um, I finished this one three or four whole days ahead of time. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. That might be a record as well. So that shows you how seriously you should take my opinions. Feel free Indeed. to dismiss them out of hand. But you know, there are already things I've, I've sort of found myself going back to and, and chewing over. So the weakness is the actual plot, but Hulk didn't write that. In sure. fact, I think he's made, uh, made us a fine silk purse. Yes. <laughs> 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 so yeah, 3.5, which for me is, is stratospheric. All right, a fine silk purse out of a petrochemical offshoot. Yes, there we go. Uh, Dalton, what about you? <laughs> I love it. I'll go with a 4.0 for this one. It's, it's got all the things I like from Hulk. 
the, the story, like Allison said, is, is a little a bit of an issue, but there's there's a lot of humor in it. There's a lot to think about within it. Having Joe leave was is sad, but it's okay. There'll be more companions. Um, so yeah, I would say 4.0. So many more companions, yes. And for me, I would give it a 4.25. And the only reason I'm not giving it higher is because Hulk drops the ball on that ending. Because that ending in Hulk's hands could have been so impactful, just as it is on screen. But it simply isn't. It's just a a damp squib, as they say. But the rest of it isn't. The rest of it is incredibly effective. We even get sympathy for the devil, so to speak, because we get sympathy for Stevens. We get sympathy for a goddamn maggot, for Christ's sake. (laughs) Yeah. So, yes, only Hulk. I mean, I I know I make my joke often that Hulk is the strongest there is. This proves it. This book, more than any other, I would say even more so than uh, Cave Monsters, which I think I gave a higher rating than this. This is probably one of the best Doctor Who novelizations, just in terms of taking the original story, expanding it, making the characters more fully fleshed out, making the maggots more fully fleshed out, doing everything right, maybe a few missteps. There are some funny bits in the televised version that don't happen in the book, such as Benton going along with the doctor on his ride to feed the maggots their uh, mushrooms. Yeah that, <laughs> that partic- yeah, that particular sequence is hilarious on screen. It doesn't happen here. But it's replaced by so much that's good. And that's the sign of a really fantastic novelization. So, thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we start a new season, season 11, and we'll be discussing Terrence Dick's novelization of a Robert Holmes script, The Time Lawyer. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Our new theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash Y32B8F55, along with many, many others. Give him a follow and the thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. David Howes, Day David Howes, son of a let me try that again. And this is also the last story in story order, and oddly enough, in pro- son of a bitch. Unit, Joe Grant, and Doctor Who in tow. Uh, let me say that again. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to unmute my mic and it wasn't coming off. There we go. Well, here's the thing. <clears throat> Oh, sorry, my nose is all stopped up here. While we're at it. <coughs> yes. While we're editing, thank you. <laughs> there we are. Okay. Lovely symphony. Yes. Now to come back to your question. Mm-hmm. Through these different social relationships he shows relation. Yeah, social relationships he shows us. Is really probably one of the most human. Oh, God, what the hell was that? That was Something just a closing. Oh, okay. 
Um, let me say that again. Or subscribe to us via the podcaster provider 